Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Bryce. And I'm Mike. And today we're going to start Alma's letters to his sons. Alma has three sons, Helaman, Shiblon, and Corianton, and he's going to write individual letters to each one of them. The Come Follow Me curriculum splits them in half. So today we're just going to do his letters to Helaman and Shiblon, and next week we'll do his letter to his wayward son, Corianton. So Mike, tell me what you get out of these letters from a father to his sons. There's a lot of ways to look at these chapters. And when I teach, you know, younger people, I don't necessarily take this route, but I think our audience, Bryce, is probably the older crowd. I don't know if there's a lot of teenagers listening and talking scripture. So I'm going to talk about this as relationships and relationship building. And I think one way to look at this is that Alma is showing us how to be a good parent, how to be a good mom or dad. And so look at the last verse of Alma 35. I think this is really interesting. He says this, He caused that his son should be gathered together, that he might give unto them every one his charge separately, concerning the things pertaining unto righteousness. He talks to them as individuals. Which means you have a different relationship with each child. You don't have a relationship with your children. You have a relationship with each child. And you may not necessarily do the same activities with child two that child one wants. I really love that. I always think about, do you remember that uh, oft-quoted thing from David O. McKay when he was on a walk and Fred Baker recorded this? We don't have this in any official talk from General Conference, but David O. McKay was on a walk and he stopped to talk to some of the workers that were working on the Hotel Utah And he said to them one of the most profound things I've ever heard David O. McKay say, and I quote it all the time, and that is that I'll tell you, if you're going to have a personal priesthood interview with the Savior, and if you're interested, I'll tell you the questions he's going to ask you in what order. And the first question was, have you actively been engaged in helping your spouse be happy? And that clearly should be the first question. Tell me about your relationship with your spouse. But then I'm fascinated what he said next. He says, the Savior will ask a stewardship about each of your children, your relationship to each of your children. He won't ask a general family stewardship. He wants to know what you have been doing with each and every one of your children. And that's why I love what Alma does here, because that statement, he, he gave them each their charge separately. Yeah. I think with this virus and the whole quarantine thing, one thing I'm noticing is life is slowing down a little bit, and I'm spending more time with my children and noticing them. And right now I have a son that I'm teaching how to drive. And it's so cool to to have those experiences and those memories of teaching them how to drive. And I like that we can be with them. Anyway, I'm just thinking about that, the idea of their individuals. And I think that this is also one way we can view Heavenly Father as he knows us individually. So I think that's a really good beginning as Alma just says, hey, he's talking to them as individuals. And then in the 36th chapter, he uses some really interesting words. He says things like, I swear unto you, or in verse 3, he says, I do know of myself, and I do know. And I think that one of the things we can do, a good principle of good parenting that we can uh, exemplify is to tell our children what we know to be true. I mean, if you remember the stripling warriors where they said, you know, they did not doubt that their mothers knew it, or when Enos was really sad, and he was stirred up by the words of his father Jacob at a moment when he needed them. 
Lehi was constantly stirring up Laman and Lemuel to think about their relationship to God. And if you think about Alma the Elder's words, when Alma the Younger, which we'll look at later, when he was in this deep abyss, he remembered the words of his father. And so I think that the conversations we have with our children can sink deep into their hearts, even though I know many of you listening have probably had conversations with your teenagers and you're talking to them and you're wondering, are they even listening? But I just want to say they are. I remember being that teenager and I remember I was listening, but I kind of had my arms folded like, yeah, well, what are you going to tell me? Right? So we should testify to our kids. They should not be confused as to where we stand. And sometimes I will say this, they listen more to what we do than like the words we're using. Which is the next thing Alma's going to do. He's, he's going to say, do this as I have. I think that's significant that you, we see not only I know, I know, I know, but I have done, I have done, I have done. And so I think they go hand in hand that the best way we bear testimony to our children is how we live our lives. Yeah. Watching mom and dad go to the temple, watching mom and dad pray, watching kindness and gentleness and patience. And I think that's one of the best ways we say, I do know. I love that that's in every one of these chapters, chapter 36, chapter 37, chapter 38. It's in every one of those chapters where he says, I want you to know that I know. At the end of 36, he talks about the captivity that they've been through and and remember as I have done. Um, I think that that is an important thing. Like if you say one thing and you do something else, I think your kids are going to see right through that, right? Yeah, you can look at this list. Verse 2, I would that you should do as I have done in remembering the captivities of our fathers. And that's, we're in chapter 36. That, yeah, 36, yeah. 2, and then 36, 9 might quote it, and then 36, 30, behold, my son, this is not all, for you ought to know as I do know. And then in chapter 30. 7, verse 2, I command you to keep a record of this people according as I have done. I've done it. And keep these things sacred which I have kept, even as I have kept them. So in almost every one of these things, Alma doesn't say, hey, go do it. Alma says, go do it as I have done it. Now, this is very significant for Alma because he was a horrible teenager himself. And sometimes parents allow that to cripple them. You know, sometimes mistakes I made as a teenager, we allow to cripple us as a parent to say, well, I can never tell my child to do something because I was such a horrible person when I was their age. But notice that Alma doesn't let that cripple him. He says, you should do as I have done and am doing. And ever since I was a rebellious teenager, look what I've done. You are more than capable of overcoming mistakes. And so Alma doesn't let his mistakes cripple him. He says, this is what I have done ever since then, and that's what I would ask you to do. Let that be the shining beacon you look at. And I love that he's able to say, as I have done, even though he does have a checkered past. I got to say, I'm grateful that the scriptures show Alma as a real person. Man, it gives me hope for my humanity. One of my favorite Lorenzo Snow quotes was when he was a young man, and I think he was on Zion's camp, and he says, other people saw Joseph, and they saw his faults, and they just kind of nitpicked him and said, how can this guy be a prophet? And Lorenzo Snow's take was, I think it's awesome. If God can make Joseph a prophet, there's hope for all of us. I love that. I remember reading Ezra Taft Benson's biography, and when he was in high school, he got in a fist fight. And that was the best thing in the book for me. That was the most exciting thing I read in that book because all of a sudden Ezra Taft Benson, 
who I had held up as this saint almost, became a very real human being and someone I really could follow because he was a normal teenager and he overcame some mistakes. And that's what I love so much about Alma. He is a great parent because he overcame mistakes and he wasn't crippled by them. So good. He was able to say, do as I am now doing. He uses parent words. If you look in 36, 29, and 30, he says, you got to do as, I, as I've done, but then you ought to do this. This is a good example as parents. We're not supposed to just be buddies with our kids, but we're actually supposed to guide them and show them where to go. And that's hard. I always tell my wife, I love being a parent. I don't like being a referee. So my approach has always been, at least I've tried to be a parent who I'm a guide on the side and I point out man, can you see how this goes? I've had a lot of conversations with my boys where, can you see how if you choose this role or if you choose this behavior, where it leads? And so I'm not necessarily like trying to hammer them, but I'm trying to point to them, look at this path, look at this path and see this one. Now, which one of those do you want to go on and where will they lead? And I think that's a, you know one of the ways to parent. I'm certainly not an expert. If my sons are listening to this podcast, I'm sure you're thinking of the times where I failed in this. You know, We all fail. But I like that. I like that idea that a good parent points them where they ought to go, and he teaches by example. And then finally, in the 37th chapter, the whole 37th chapter we're going to get into in depth. It's riddled with temple symbolism and ascension. It's an ascension text, but it's also a very simple chapter to talk about, well, what is the value of the word, of the scriptures? And so he doesn't send his children off into the world, this chaos world of you know all kinds of difficulty without a compass to guide them. He talks about the power of the word and the scriptures. And then he talks about what the scriptures do. Uh, look what he says in verse 8. These things should be preserved, and why? Well, because they've enlarged the memory of this people and convinced them of the error of their ways and brought them to the knowledge of of their God unto the salvation of their souls. Hey, Mike, I think one of the things we forget when I study the scriptures is I am expanding not just my experiences, but I'm adding to my experiences everyone else's experiences in the scriptures. I don't have to go back and build a boat and cross the ocean like Nephi did because I learned from Nephi's experience. I don't have to do all these things because my mind is filled with the experiences that other people have had and the lessons they learned from them. I learned some great lessons from the mistakes that I've made. But man, have I learned some lessons from the mistakes that people made in the Scriptures. Yeah, And so I love that phrase that the Scriptures enlarge the memory of this people so that we can not only live with our own experiences, but so many experiences and be better. I've had so many people comment to me about the podcast we did on Alma 30 and 31, where they've said, oh my goodness, I see how Alma's interaction with Korhor has played out every day on social media. I've had so many people come and say that to me, and I think that's so true. Yeah, and I I just, I love the phrase at the end of the Book of Mormon where Moroni's writing to us and says, condemn us not for our imperfections. But rather give thanks unto God that he hath made manifest our imperfections, that you may learn to be more wise than we have been. Such a grace. And that phrase is just so beautiful about all the scripture writers to say, hey, you notice that Joseph Smith could easily have left out the loss of the 116 pages, just written that out of the Doctrine and Covenants. It's got to be embarrassing for him. But the whole idea is condemn me not for mine imperfections, but give thanks unto God that you have this story, that you can learn to be more wise than we have been. And if that 
were the only reason to read the scriptures, I think it would be extremely valuable because it's enlarging our memory and allowing us to have so many experiences without actually having to have the pain associated with some of those experiences. I don't have to lose the 116 pages to learn the lesson. And even yet with that, the greatest message is the end of verse 9 of yeah. chapter 37, is to bring us to Christ, to bring us to the knowledge of Christ as our Redeemer. And so hopefully as we read the Scriptures, as you read them, you feel the spirit of the Scriptures, not just what the words are saying, but the spirit of what it's moving you to, to understand. I got to say, I read some of these heroes in here, and I see their passion, and I think Jesus has that same passion about some of these ideas, some of these ideas of family and love and beauty and what it means to be free, what it means to to grow or to progress. Which is a great commentary on how to read the scriptures. If all you're doing is reading over and, and getting a summary of the, of the substance of what happened in the chapter, you're missing it. You're missing Jesus. The scriptures are supposed to reveal him and show him and lead us to him. And so if you're not finding Jesus in the scriptures, then I would invite you to dig a little deeper, spend a little bit more time looking and pondering. It's not the stories we're after. It's not facts and figures. Neil A. Maxwell once said that the problem with Laman and Lemuel is they were reading the scriptures to connect doctrinal dots rather than connecting themselves to God and his purposes for them. So hopefully you see that. The multifaceted nature of it is revealing who Jesus is. At least that's one way I look at it, especially if you look at the end of verse 9 there. The 38th chapter is very short. I think it's 15 verses. In my opinion, Shiblon's kind of that good child that just is so good we don't notice him. But I will say that he praises his steadiness and his goodness and his faithfulness and diligence in the second and third verses of Alma 38. You can just highlight those words, steadiness and faithfulness and diligence. And he's just so praising of who Shiblon is. And I think that's a really good invitation to us as parents. This is just me, but I think sometimes we see... Sometimes we see the children that are doing the things that we don't like, and we spend a lot of our energy on them, and we miss over the kids that are just doing great, the children that are just faithful. Now, this is difficult. The bulk of Alma's teaching is to who? Well, if you count up all of the verses and divide by the total, Helaman got 42%, Shiblon got 8 and Corianton got 50 50% of the verses in these letters goes to the wayward sinning son. And what's interesting is every bishop out there is sitting there saying, yep, that's about right. 50% of a bishop's attention will go to the struggling members of the church, helping them overcome sin, bringing them back from inactivity. About 42% of a bishop's time will go to the leadership of the ward, helping them run the organizations. And that leaves the bulk of his ward, the shiblons of the ward, who maybe get 8% of a bishop's time. And part of that is okay. Part of that says, yeah, this church is built on the shiblons. And, and we are filled with high-yield, low-maintenance members who just do their job. And I would say to all the shiblons out there, you don't need to envy the Helamans. You don't need to envy the Coriantans. It's not about praise from dad or praise from the bishop, or minutes in the limelight. It's about love from Heavenly Father and knowing that you're doing something that's pleasing to Him. And so sometimes people get a little Helaman envy. And man, I wish I were a leader in the church. I wish I were in the presidency. 
or I wish I you know, spoke more in sacrament meeting because I want the limelight because that's somehow how we measure goodness. And I think we need to rewrite the way we measure goodness because Shiblon clearly is a valiant young man. He was stoned once for his testimony. He was in jail and stoned because he was firm in the faith. This is a great young man. There is no question in my mind that Shiblon is headed to the celestial kingdom. Shiblon needs to know that not getting the attention from membership of the church, not being the one in the limelight that everyone knows is okay. The goal isn't necessarily to get the attention from others that Helaman gets or even Coriantin gets. Sometimes we're Coriantin envious and we deliberately do bad so that we get attention. Well, especially in a family, like if you have a sibling who's just burning it down and the parents are giving all their energy and you're thinking, well, how come they're not noticing the good I'm doing? That's tough. Yeah. But yeah, it's tough for the parent when you have the, the Coriantan child. You have to deal with the Coriantan so child. So tough. Yeah. But for that Shiblon child, hopefully they just, like, I remember having a discussion with a young person who got straight A's. I mean, this student got straight A's all the time and report cards had come out and her little brother got a B and her parents threw the biggest party that her younger brother got a B, and she was like, well, they've never thrown me a party. I never get a party, and I get A's. And I said to her, I said, you know what your reward is? Not the party. Your reward are the A's. Your reward is being Shiblon. You don't have to deal with being a Coriantan. Hey, if a Coriantan gets a B, it's a reason to party. We should celebrate if a Coriantin gets a B, but don't think that the reward is the party, the attention from mom and dad, the number of minutes in the limelight. The reward is the life that Shiblon is living. Something a leader once said to me is we should seek to be high-yield, low-maintenance members of the church. And I think that's it's difficult, I think, sometimes because when we're high-yield, low-maintenance, it's almost like... You don't notice it. When you walk into a room, you don't notice how clean it is. You notice when it's messy. Right. When your car drives you to work every day, you don't think about your car. You notice it when you fried your clutch, right? It's you so don't notice the referee in a game unless they make a call that you think is absolutely horrible. Yeah. As long as they're doing their job well, no one notices. Yeah, like you said, if you're just doing your job well and no one's noticing, that's a, a great way to know that you're doing well, right? Because no one's getting on you. But I'm going to pick on Alma a little bit. I think it would have been cool if Shiblon would have got more attention. That being said, we are not doing Coriantin in this podcast. So I'll just be very brief and say this. Good parenting means you have to have the hard conversations. You have to sit down and say, hey, this is what's going on. This is what I see. This is how you need to correct it. And there's hope. And we'll do a whole podcast on Coriantin. But in conclusion on this, these ideas... First, we need to remember to deal with our children one-on-one. We need to bear our testimonies to them so that they know what we believe. And we should probably do this more than once. We should probably do this frequently. We should lead by example so that they can see what we're doing. We should lay the scriptures open to them so that they see value in them and teach them how to use them so that they can teach from them, but that also so they can understand them. I think that's important. And find Jesus in them. Yeah. It's one thing to read them, but it's another thing to know, well, what's happening? And, And if we miss Jesus, I think we're missing the whole thing. And then we need to validate and praise our children. Let them know the joy and happiness that they bring into our lives. And so that's kind of a mini overview of what's happening here. Let's go back and do chapter by chapter. 
Chapter 36, he writes to Helaman, and the point here is about Alma's conversion, what the road that Alma went through to be converted and his own conversion story. But he seems to be harping on the pain he went through and then the absence of that pain. So I think there's a lot of attempts here, but what I love to do here is to point out this is the role of the atonement. If I could just show people one little snapshot and say, well, you know what, you want to know why you need Jesus? Let me show you why you need Jesus and take a little picture. This is the picture I would want them to see. And I would say, okay, let's make a list of life without Jesus and things that are going to happen without the Savior's grace in your life. So verse 12, racked with eternal torment. Now I promise, whether it's today, next year, or sometime, everyone who chooses sin will be racked with eternal torment. There will come a day. Maybe it won't be until you're standing in front of him. But racked with eternal torment, harrowed up to the greatest degree, racked with all my sins. 13, tormented with the pains of hell. Now, I love 14. That's to me one of the favorite, my favorite things that Alma says. In his sins, the thought of facing God, the thought, the thought of coming into the presence of God racked his soul with inexpressible horror. You've got to remember that phrase. The thought of facing God in his sins filled him with inexpressible horror, and he wanted to become extinct. I would rather not exist than go stand in front of God with my transgressions. Verse 16, racked with the pains of a damned soul, racked with torment in 17, harrowed up by the memory of my many sins. So that's what sin does in our life. That's how it corrodes away, and standing accountable for sin is going to fill our souls with that type of pain. Because of that, we don't like that state. And so the natural man solution, you know, if we take Jesus out of it, the natural man solution is to cover that up. And so what are some ways you've seen people try to cover that up? And that's exactly what Adam and Eve do in the Garden of Eden, you know, when they transgressed. Their soul was clearly harrowed up when God was on his way, and so they take fig leaves and they try to cover them up. They hide their sins. They hide what's going on because being exposed is the harrowing, racked experience. It's so painful. And so sometimes we lie and we cheat and we run away and we cover our sins. The problem with fig leaves is, you you know, you can't cover your sins with a lie because it falls off. Fig leaves fall off. So when the fig leaves don't work, they run behind the trees. And then in the latter days, Alma tells us that men's sins will be so big, they will want mountains to fall upon them. So we try and hide and cover. But the reality is that Alma's learning is you cannot hide. You cannot run far enough to avoid the accountability of facing God in our transgressions. These words are very specifically and well-chosen. This story was already told in Mosiah 27, but Alma has specifically constructed this text to really draw out the intensity of what he's going through. Yeah, he's clearly trying to make a point here. And then in 17, he remembers his father prophesying unto the people concerning the coming of one Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to atone for the sins of the world. And that goes back to Mike's point. What turns this young man around was a conversation he remembered with his father. And so he cries out to Jesus. Now that, verse 18, is the moment. This is the moment. However you do that with you, whatever form it takes, 
It's the coming to Jesus moments. It's the, okay, I can't do this. I can't live like this. I can't be this kind of person. I choose not to go this route. Lord, is there another way? Is there any way? Is there any hope for me? Will you consider me? And he just cries out and says, oh, Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me. I am in the gall of bitterness. And immediately his pain is removed. I could remember my pain no more. I was harrowed up by the memory of my sins no more. Oh, what joy and marvelous light. My soul was filled with joy. Now, I just love what he's going about to do here. Do you remember verse 14? The thought of going and facing God in my sins filled him with inexpressible horror. But now in verse 22, he sees God. And instead of inexpressible horror, he sees angels praising God and his soul longed to be there. He does not want to cease to exist. This is a man who did horrible things, who at one point before the atonement came into his life, the thought of facing God filled him with inexpressible horror. But with Jesus as my captain, with Jesus on my team, that completely turns around. And instead of horror, it's longing, longing to praise him and sing his praises. And I love how this kind of unlocks, there's this, this hidden idea in the book of Revelation that the saved people are singing this song that no one knows. Well, how do you learn the song? Right there is how you learn the song. You learn the song when Jesus saves you, when you feel that redeeming love. Alma calls it, if you've ever thought to sing the song of redeeming love, you have to know the goodness of the atonement. You have to have this kind of an experience. And when you do, your sins will not harrow you down, but you will long to be with God and to sing his praises. That's the power of the atonement. It can cover those sins. You can't. But the joy Alma feels when Jesus comes into his life, that's what the atonement does. Now, notice verse 24. Alma was a changed being. A lot of people get the wrong idea with Alma 36 that repentance is easy. All you have to do is ask for forgiveness and boom, your pain goes away. That is not the case. Alma changed. Alma feels pain that leads to change. Pain is important in our lives. God allows us to feel pain so that we change. But when we change, there's no need for the pain. And so as soon as Alma changes, the pain goes away. How do we know Alma changed? Instead of just going through the lip service like so many people seem to do with their repentance, oh, I'm so sorry, Heavenly Father, I won't do it again. Please take my pain away. But look at verse 24. You have to tie 24 into this light coming into his life and the joy that he feels. He says, from that moment, even until now, I have labored without ceasing that I might bring souls unto repentance. Alma changed. Now, how fast can you change? Can you change as fast as, can you make momentarily completely change? Sure you can. As soon as you change, as soon as your heart changes, then the joy of the atonement comes and erases the agony of sin. But you have to change. As soon as you change, then Jesus takes that pain away. 
I really like the idea of justification and sanctification. And justification is where the Lord says, Bryce, you're good. You're clean. When, it, when Joseph went to Heavenly Father and he prayed when he was 14, one of his questions was, where am I? Where's, where's my station before you? And the first message was, you're clean. And yet at the same time, sanctification is exactly what you're talking about. It's this idea of changing. And so Elder Holland really drew this out where he said, you can change anything you want to change and you can do it really fast. A satanic sucker punch is that it takes years and years and eons to repent. And that's just not true. It takes exactly as long to repent as it takes for you to say, I'll change and to mean it. Of course, there will be problems to work out and restitution to make. You may well spend, indeed, you had better spend the rest of your life proving your repentance by its permanence. But change, growth, renewal, and repentance can come for you as instantaneously as it did for Alma and the sons of Mosiah. I really like the idea that immediately the atonement can fix you in the sense of, from God's perspective, you're clean. But are, are you changed? And the answer is no. I think the reverse is what Satan wants us to do. The reverse is to say, okay, I've got this sin, or I've got this addiction, or I've got this problem. I will, on my own, I'm just going to work on this. And then when it's fixed, I'll go to God and ask for forgiveness. And then what happens? You never fix it. You can't fix it without his help. Yeah. You can't. But what you can say is, I don't want to do that anymore, Lord. I'm done wanting to do that. I, I, I want to be better. And if you'll help me, I'll change. But as of this moment right now, I no longer want to be that kind of person. Boom. Yep. That attitude qualifies you for the Lord's help and his grace. And you beg him for it. And then from that moment on, he can help you be sanctified and change. But that's what Alma 36 is teaching. And sometimes we need to make sure that we clearly distinguish. Repentance can be very quick. Repentance can be immediate. Change isn't. But repentance can be if you, like Alma, change your heart. Now, one of the ways you measure that is, do you long to praise God? Do you spend the rest of your life serving people? And so, if you haven't changed, change. But I love Alma 36. It gives me hope that as soon as you are committed to change, the Lord comes down and encircles you in the arms of safety. I also love when he's in that deep abyss, once again, it's the words of his father. So to you parents out there that have a son or daughter struggling, Never underestimate the power of your love and your influence. Keep that relationship. Even if they're fractured with their respect to their belief in Jesus, if you keep the relationship, a lot of times you don't even need to say anything. I remember one time we were doing visits and we went to visit this family who hadn't been to church in a while. I didn't even bring up the church. We were just visiting. I wasn't dressed in my church clothes. We were just visiting. And later they came up to me in church and they said, You didn't say it, but the only thing I was hearing was, I need to come back. So just your presence conveys that message, don't you think? Yep. Yep. And it's a powerful memory embedded in their hearts, and they will pull it out when they need it. So good. Alma chapter 36 is one of the great evidences that Joseph Smith didn't write this Book of Mormon. There's no way he could. Tell us why, Mike. Well, essentially what it is, is it's a structure that's written in inverted parallelism. It begins and ends the same. And then the second point Alma makes, if you read the second to last verse in Alma 36, oh my goodness, it's repeating and it goes on and on and it is inverted. It's parallelism that repeats itself. So he says A, and then he says B, then he says C, D, E, and then he says E, 
and goes backwards, D-C-B-A. Yeah. Now, visually, we have provided in the show notes, you can actually see this all drawn out, but the center of the structure, verse 17, 18, 19, and 20, it's where Alma goes from being harrowed up and racked to remembering the words of his father. He cries out to Jesus, and at the moment when he reaches for Jesus' hand, he can remember his pains no more, and it's flipped. And so the same ideas and thoughts, even the same words are used in an inverted style. In scholarship, they call this a chiastic structure. John Welch was the one who discovered this. He was on his mission, and there were some biblical scholars talking about, oh my goodness, this is all over the place in the Bible. And he started searching his scriptures, and he found, I believe he is the one that found it in Alma 36. This idea of chiastic structures, this form of writing, was not known in Joseph Smith's day. No one even knew that this was a thing in the Bible. Now, it doesn't prove Joseph Smith's a prophet. It doesn't prove the Book of Mormon, but it's one of those cool things to see I think what we can say is that when Mormon put this together, he's being very deliberate, but it's pretty awesome. I really like it. There's a ton of these kinds of things happening in the Bible. With the, Usually they're smaller. I think Alma 36, from what I've read, is the biggest one in the Book of Mormon. It's the most intricate. We don't want to get what some people call chiasmania. Like, I, you know, I don't want to be that person, but we, we should acknowledge it, that it's in there. And it's a great evidence. It's a, it's a confirmation to those who already believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet. How did he use ancient literary techniques that weren't even known in his day, but would be known later on? How did he just randomly come up with a very common ancient literary technique that Joseph clearly would not have known in the 1820s? And I love that the apex of it is Jesus. That it's Jesus grasping your hand. Yeah, the apex of it isn't something random that has no association with the message. The entire message is focused on those verses. And Bryce, I really like how you drew out what the atonement does, the role of pain, how pain can motivate us to change. I do think that that's a big reason why in our culture we try to cover the pain with all these things you're talking about. We use chemicals or activities that make us kind of distract. Numb. Yeah, we're numb to stuff. Our society, I think, has a a big numb problem. Yeah. I heard an ancient, I don't even know who to attribute this to. Someone attributed it to an ancient Native American tradition. I hope someone listening can let me know. If you know the source of this, I'd love to know. But years ago, I heard a an ancient tradition among some people that everyone has a triangle in their heart that spins when you sin. When you transgress, that triangle spins. Now, a spinning triangle is going to cut and hurt. So you can do two things to a spinning triangle in your heart. A, you can harden your heart, which will chip off corners of that triangle until eventually it becomes a circle. And when it does... You will spin and spin and spin and spin and not feel a thing. You can numb yourself to the point where now sin no longer hurts because you've chipped off the corners of that triangle. Or the other thing is, as soon as that triangle starts to spin and it cuts you, you repent and you change and you stop the spinning and then it doesn't hurt. And Alma chapter 36 is trying to say, you've got to stop the spinning. Because we do, we, we, we numb ourselves to the pain as a solution to making it go away. We, we don't want to be racked. But what you need to do is just turn to the Savior and he will stop the spinning. And then the pain will go away. The pain will go away. Alma 36, good stuff. All right, let's move on to Alma chapter 37. Alma has been the guardian of the scriptures, and he's now passing that responsibility on to Helaman. 
And so this is his chance to say, let me tell you why this is important. Now, everyone loves to quote verse 6. Everyone loves Alma 37, 6. By small and simple things, great things are brought to pass. Now, that is a true statement, and I don't want to diminish from how we use it. But the context here is all of the effort that Alma has gone through to take care of the Scriptures. Notice verse 6, now you may suppose that this is foolishness in me. You've got to identify the antecedent to this. It's everything that he's been doing to keep the brightness of the plates, to retain the plates, to write them and to hand them down. You may think that taking care of the scriptures is a foolish and a worthless thing. It's not worth all the time. Can you imagine chiseling on metal plates? I can't even imagine how tedious that must be. And so someone might say, well, it's not worth it. It's not worth the time it takes to chisel on metal plates. And that's the setting for this verse. The effort we have to go through to preserve the scriptures or to read them or to acquire them is worth it because it's one of those small and simple things that brings to pass great things. So Mike already talked about verse 8 and 9, about some of the blessings of the Scriptures. They enlarge our soul. They convince people of the error of their ways. They bring them to the knowledge of God. They lead us to Jesus. But at the end of Alma chapter 37, he compares it to the Liahona. Every single one of you. And the fun thing is, your Scriptures are probably on your phone. In your pocket is a Liahona. And they sit on our bedside tables they sit everywhere. Now, let's expand that a little bit, and let's not limit it to scriptures, because I think in light of what President Nelson is trying to get us to do, it's all the ways that we hear God. Every one of us has a liahona, a means of being directed from the divine. Every one of us, no matter where you live, no matter your age, every one of us has a liahona. And however God speaks to you, through prayer, through temple, through scripture, through pondering, all of those combined are symbolized by this liahona. Now, unfortunately, let's do the negative, and then we're going to turn around and we'll do a positive. Anciently, with the liahona, Lehi and his group got slothful. So if you get slothful with your liahona, then the marvelous works will cease. I'm reading from verse 31, Alma 37, 31. When they got slothful and forgot, then the marvelous work ceased and they did not progress. Notice what they did instead. So if you get lazy, if you get slothful and forget, miracles cease and you won't progress. Instead, verse 42, you'll tarry in the wilderness. Now think of a synonym for tarrying in the wilderness. Sometimes we say, I'm stuck. I'm in a rut. And that's what happens when you are slothful to use your liahona. You get stuck. Can you think of anyone in your life who's in a rut and they're stuck? And I wonder if they're being slothful to their liahona. The next phrase in verse 42 is they did not travel in a direct course. In other words, they wander. Are you wandering? Can you think of anyone who's wandering? Is it because they are not using the liahona of their life? And then the last one is they're hungering. They're hungering and thirsting. If we forget the liahonas, miracles cease. We don't progress. Instead, we get stuck, we wander, and we hunger. So let's flip that around. 
Let's make it positive. What if instead of being slothful, we were diligent? And I love Lehi's term here because in, in Lehi's version of the tree, there were three, there were four different groups of people. You can go back and listen to that podcast where we identify four different groups of people and how they respond to the tree. Some of them don't even grab the, tr- the rod. Some of them get on the path and don't grab the rod. Other people grab the rod and cling to it. It's only the fourth group that get to and stay at the tree. And what they did to distinguish themselves is they continually held fast. It's the diligence with which we hear him that's important. It's the diligence of our prayers. It's the diligence of scripture reading. If you will be diligent and remember, then marvelous works will come into your life. I testify of that. I promise that. I have had a front row seat watching Latter-day Saints invite the scriptures into their life. Then the miracles turn on and they progress. So what would the opposite of being stuck be? You're compelled forward. You're moved. You're motivated. What would the opposite of being a wanderer? You are directly moving forward. You are honed in on where you're going. And then I love the opposite of the last one. There is something in the scriptures that satisfies the hunger inside of us. This is exactly what Jesus was saying to the woman at the well. If you drink of normal water, you'll thirst again. If you drink of the world's solutions to your problems, you'll thirst again. But if you drink of Jesus, if you drink of the water that he offers, you will ne- it will satisfy that thirst. The Book of Mormon uses the word filled. You will be filled. And so whatever your Leahona is, however you hear him, be diligent. Don't be slothful. I think there's two things I would raise, two problems, if you're going to start down a path of studying the Scriptures. Let me help you avoid two obstacles. Nephi brings us up one. He uses the brass serpent, and he says, because it was so easy, they got negligent. It is very easy to invite God into your life. It's as simple as kneeling down and praying to him. It's as simple as opening up the scriptures and reading. Now, I know you could take task with the word easy because, you know, there's a diligence here. There's an effort here. But the action involved in inviting God into our life are very easy actions. But because it's easy to do, it's easy to not do. It's easy to forget. Going to the temple... It's so easy to access that divine spirit that's in the temple. But because it's easy to do, it's easy to not do. Warning number one, don't let the easiness of the way become a stumbling block to you. The second warning I would give you is to go back to the Old Testament and remind you of Naaman the Syrian who had leprosy. He was told by Elisha the prophet to bathe seven times in the Jordan River. So he goes down one time and comes out. Now, how much leprosy falls after one dip in the river? He still has it all. No leprosy. Wouldn't you come up out of the water expecting to see some type of change? Wouldn't you turn to your friends and say, is it gone? Is any of it gone? So tell me what you do if no leprosy falls. Do you give up and get out of the river? Are you a one-dip member of the church? Do you try the scriptures once, and if they don't dramatically change your life, do you walk out of the river because it didn't make the change you were expecting? 
He dips a second time, no change. A third time, no change. A fourth time, no change. By the time he dips six times and he comes out and there's no change, do you walk away after six saying, I'm giving up? I've been, I've been trying to read my scriptures and nothing's changing. I will testify to you that what we're talking about is a seven dip experience. The changes, the miracles that come when we invite the Spirit into our life do not necessarily come after one dip or two or six. It is the commitment. It is the long term. So commit to the study of the Scriptures. Commit to constant prayer. And after seven, and again, we're not being literal, but after seven, after a commitment to them, that's when the miracles. Don't walk out of the river if you don't see immediate changes in your life. It takes some time. But I bear you my testimony that if you will diligently remember, miracles will come into your life and they will help you journey. You will overcome that feeling of being stuck. So he says in verse 46, do not be slothful because of the easiness of the way. Let's look to God and live. It's a journey. This whole chapter is a journey. And I want to relate it to ascension, to coming to God. I want to talk about its ritual aspects and how it could be associated with the temple. And even I had an experience, I went to a Greek Orthodox church with one of my friends and we sat there in the, in the pews and a lot of it was in Greek, but it was fascinating how much of the temple is in the Greek liturgical ceremony of, of the Eucharist, what they call the Eucharist, which is just another way for Latter-day Saints, we say the sacrament, but they have a veil and the Eucharist or the, the sacrament's going to come from this Holy of Holies to the people. And there's a voice speaking from behind there and it kind of represents God. And the whole time I'm sitting there going, oh my goodness, there's a lot of the temple in here. Bryce, are we okay? I think, based on what Elder Bednar said, it can be as dangerous to not talk. We as Latter-day Saints have this feeling that I can't say anything about the temple. You know, because I can't say certain things, we assume I can't say anything about the temple. And we feel like any time you talk about the temple, it's taboo. And I've, I've felt very uncomfortable over the years talking about the temple. And thank goodness for Elder Bednar, who came out recently and suggested, perhaps it's as dangerous for our children to not talk about the temple as it is to say things we shouldn't say. So Elder Bednar said, let me tell you what you can and cannot say. And so I'm quoting from David A. Bednar. In April of 19, or 2019, he said, we should not disclose or describe the special symbols associated with the covenants we receive in sacred temple ceremonies. So don't describe the symbols associated with the covenants. Neither should we discuss the holy information that we specifically promise in the temple not to reveal. You don't reveal the things you promise not to reveal. And then he says, we may discuss the basic purposes of and the doctrine and the principles associated with temple ordinances and covenants. So as we talk about the purpose of a temple, the purpose of the endowment, the, the doctrine of the endowment, the principles associated with the endowment, Elder Bednar says we need to talk more about those things. So I see that in here. Alma 37 is about our ascension to God. Wouldn't it be wonderful for a parent to sit down and say to a child, hey, you want to know more about the temple? Let me show you in the scriptures kind of the idea of what the temple, the symbolic idea of what the temple is trying to do here. And then crack open and Alma then 37. And then crack open Alma 37 and say, watch this progression. 
and we're trying to, ultimately we're trying to get to God, the destination through the temple is to lead me into a private moment with Heavenly Father. And so you're on good ground, Mike. Well, as I was reading Alma 37, I started to see a light word or a theme word, and there were a few of them that are just repeated over and over again. And I would encourage you to open up Alma 37, grab a pen, and just go to town. I'm not going to cover all of them, but take the word keep. The beginning of Alma 37, it says that he tells him, you know, keep these things sacred, which I have kept, even as I have kept them, for it is for a wise purpose that they are kept. Kept, wise, sacred, and these things. Over and over again, he's, he's using these phrases. And so kept, I just want to talk about that word to have something to be kept or to keep. We see it again in verse 4. They should be kept and handed down, and they should be kept and preserved. Verse 5, they should be kept and retain their brightness. Verse 12, it may suffice if I say they are preserved for a wise purpose. We've got this association with wisdom. Verse 14, we've got to keep them sacred and keep and preserve them for a wise purpose. I mean, you can just go on and on. Look at verse 16. Keep the commandments of God and do these things which are sacred all over the place. It's, it's reversed in verse 29 where he's talking about the opposite of the sacred things. He's talking about the dark things in the plates of the Jaredites. But essentially, that phrase of keep is an interesting word. In the Greek, it's tereo. It means to stand at a watch or to stand at the ready or to be like a guardian. And in John 17, Jesus uses this word a lot. And he also uses the word for guard. In the intercessory prayer in John 17, he says in verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world, speaking of the twelve. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. He says it again in verse 11. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me. What Jesus is asking his Father to do, I believe, in the Greek text, is to guard them, to protect them, to watch over them. But the word is keep, and the word is pregnant with meaning. Look in verse 12 of John 17. When I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. So there is this association with the name of God and Jesus guarding them. It's fascinating. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. And so that idea of keep is to guard or to stand at the ready or to watch. And what's interesting is when uh, even in verse 12 of John 17, where he says, none of them is lost but the son of perdition, the word that's used there is someone who was lost as a casualty of war. And so he's kind of alluding to Judas fell by the wayside. He's a victim of this great war that we're having with Satan. And so there's this imagery. It's almost like a military imagery of keeping, preserving, watching over. And I find that to be very instructive. And there's a lot of levels to this. And and we don't know if the plate text is Hebrew or how much of it was. You know, they say, hey, we weren't using Hebrew, but these words kind of pop through. In the Hebrew, the word is shamar or shamer, which is to keep or preserve. But the nuanced levels to the meaning of keep or preserve are replete throughout. So look at verse 14, Alma 37. These things which are sacred, which he has kept sacred, and also which he will keep and preserve for a wise purpose. 
over and over again, the ideas of preserving or keeping, which is essentially the same idea, are attached to the word sacred and wisdom. And the word sacred means to be set apart or to be made to be holy. And that's used seven times in this narrative. It's used in verse 2, a couple times in verse 14, 15, 16, and 47. The association of things being sacred. The final connection of sacred is going to be in the 47th verse where he says this. He says, and now my son, see that you take care of these sacred things. He, he puts the word sacred right between these things. And so that brings me to, what does this have to do with the temple? Well, the phrase, these things, is devar, and that's associated with holiness or with the temple. The word devir is the oracle or the holy of holies or the place of speaking. And so think about the temple. Think about God. Or to use my analogy, sitting in the, the Greek Orthodox church, they would part the veil and you would see sacred things behind the veil where the Eucharist is going to come forth. And that would be the place of speaking. The priest would be behind there and he would be speaking. And then the Eucharist would come to the worshipers. So the Devere anciently was the place of speaking where God spoke to the prophets. If you remember Isaiah 6, remember Isaiah approaches, the veil's moving, there's this mist or this smoke because he's at the altar of incense. And in the Devere, he hears the Devar, these things. And these things is, I believe it's deliberate. And it's used 10 times in this text. Uh, verse 2, 8, 9, 14, 15, 16, 18, 37, 43, and 47. Essentially, what he's saying is these things need to be preserved. We need to watch, guard, and protect them, but we need to stand at the ready. This ties into all the times Alma tells his sons, we need to keep the commandments of God to prosper in the land. I think keep the commandment, the way I read the Book of Mormon is, I'm standing at the ready. I have a relationship with God, I'm listening, and I'm moving as directed to Rea or Shamar. Now think about the temple. Do we stand at the ready? Do we move as directed? Are we standing and watching and listening? Are we keeping or preserving that? Whether it's the Greek or the Hebrew, the words are the same in the sense of what they're conveying, what they're meaning. And I think some of this is lost. I don't know if it's because of the apostasy or culture, but sometimes when someone says, keep the commandments, we think, okay, I've got to follow this long list. But I think the Book of Mormon is giving us this invitation to stand at the ready and to be wise, which is another thing that's used over and over again. And the word wise or wisdom is a temple code word. There, there should be a bell that goes off in the Book of Mormon. When you read the idea of we need to be wise, that, that's connected with the temple. And so let's look at the end. So all throughout this, we need to keep these things, the devar, sacred, which comes out of the devir. We need to be wise. We need to be standing at the ready and watching. As a side note, the 24 plates in the 21st verse, the Lord says, hey, keep these interpreters. These interpreters that come from the Jaredites are going to be passed along through the chain of provenance of the plates all the way through Alma, all the way to Moroni, and the interpreters are put in the ground because they're for Joseph. Joseph Smith is the one that's going to use these interpreters. And then go to verse 23. The Lord said, I will prepare unto my servant Gazalim a stone, which shall shine forth in the darkness unto light, 
that I may discover unto them the works of their brethren. And so these interpreters are going to, verse 25, bring out of the darkness things to light. Now, that could be associated with the temple as well in section 130, right? With the white stone that's given and everybody that enters into heaven clearly has some type of connection to the temple. The word gazlam has a lot of possibilities of meaning. It could mean like a cutting or a polished stone. In Ugaritic, it could mean like a young man or a warrior or to launch an attack or to be abundant or plentiful. And we will, in the show notes, post a link where you can go and look at some of these possible meanings of the word. But I just wanted to throw out there that that could be associated with the temple too as well if you go to section 130 as a side note. But let's go to the end. Like Bryce talked about, it's easy to give heed to the word of Christ. And then verse 45, is there not a type in this thing? Even as the director brought our fathers to the promised land, can't we also follow Jesus and the word and keep or stand at the ready, be aware, be awake and watch. So let us not be slothful, verse 46, and let's get on the way. In the Greek, especially in the book of Mark, the followers of Jesus were followers of the way. And the way was a code word for ascension. In Hebrew, and I can never say the end of this word well, and the word is derek. Derek is the way. That phrase is used all over the place in the Old Testament. And the first time it's used is associated with the temple. It's we've got to put cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way of the tree of life. That's the first time it's used. Well, from a temple perspective, those cherubim and a flaming sword guarding the way, what's the tree of life? That's the Holy of Holies. And so in essence, verse 46 is, hey, we got to keep on our journey and go into the way. And if we do this, look what happens. Middle of verse 46, end of Alma 37. If we look, we'll live. And if we look, we may live forever. And to me, how do I live forever? Right here in this life, it's through my children. But from an eternal perspective, section 132, this is eternal lives. Think about the temple. Think about life. Think about the promises that Jesus gives. Think about John 17. This is life eternal, that they may have this relationship, know the Father and the Son, to know who they are, to have their character revealed, to know them is also ritually portrayed all through the temple. So I can't read Alma 37 verse 46 and not think about sacred things in the temple. I love it, Mike. If you have found Jesus in the temple and you look to the scriptures, you're going to find Jesus in the scriptures and you're going to find that similar pattern. And it really is the journey to the Savior. All of this boils down to how do I get on that journey that leads me to God? That's beautiful. I love that chapter. It's good stuff. Let's go to chapter 38, just kind of a short one. We've kind of covered most of this. This is the letter to Shiblon. Um, He commends him for his faithfulness, and we've talked a few things about being a Shiblon. I love the concept of bridling your passion. Everything we truly want is usually something God wants to give us as long as we do it the right way. Sin, if you really think about it, turns out to be the desire of some good, some good thing done the wrong way. And this idea of bridling your passion seems to say, look, everything we, we passionately strive after, even the ones that are considered sinful, is a righteous desire. Now, the, what we do with a, a bridle 
is you put a bridle on a horse to kind of guide and direct that horse so it doesn't go all over the place. It goes in a specific direction. So when you bridle your passions, you are not denying yourself. You're not eliminating your passions. You're not cutting them out of your life. You're just giving them direction. What verse are you in, Bryce? It's verse 12 where he says, Use boldness and not overbearance, and also see that you bridle all your passions. Every natural desire we have inside us is kind of rooted in a divine desire. Neil A. Maxwell once pulled it out. Even pride, even our pride for power, those people who long to have power and glory and be seen, I think is rooted, this is a suggestion I got from Neil A. Maxwell, is rooted in the fact that we remember how great God was. And we remembered how much we wanted to be like God, a man of great power that we admired. And so it's an instinctive desire in us to follow that path. But we it gets twisted into some sinful activities. But if we will bridle our passions and put directions on them so that we do them the way the Lord, there's always the right way to do something. If you look at the Savior's temptations, what was wrong with turning the stone into bread? He would very shortly thereafter turn water into wine So what was wrong with turning the stone into bread? The wrongness was in the easiness of the way. That is not the way to feed your soul. When you're hungry after a 40-day fast, that's not the way we satisfy our hunger. There is a right way. The right way was given to Adam when the Lord says, by the sweat of your brow shall you eat your bread. So either Jesus, you either walk down the mountain, work for it, make it yourself, or you work for the money to buy it. That's the right way to buy bread. And Satan was saying, no, you don't need to do it the right way. There's a right way to get an A in a class. There's a right way to get a promotion. There's a right way to buy a car. But sometimes we're tempted to do it the easy way. And so I love that advice he gives his son, bridle your passions. Anything else you have from 38, Mike? I just really like it. I, I'm going to say I wish it was a little bit longer. Sometimes we skip over the kids that are doing everything good. But uh, I guess I like to use this as an invitation to remind myself to praise. It's it's so good to praise, but I think we only notice the room when it's messy. We only notice the behaviors that are wrong. And so I, I got to do better as a parent. I got to be more of a parent that says, man, you're doing this really, really good. And make it genuine. You know, the, Your kids can see through when you're being crafty, right? So we got to be genuine. Or when you want something, so you're buttering them up. Yeah. Hey, you are such a great child. <laughs> now can you I love you. You are so amazing. Your talents are so great. Now, can you babysit tonight <laughs> while mom and I go out? <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. Okay, I, I got one more. Verse 6, uh, he says, I would not that you should think that I know of these things of myself, but it is the Spirit of God which is in me, not the angel that struck him down. Alma attributes his knowledge of truth to the spirit, not the angel. Think about that. Some people would love the Lord to prove that the gospel's true. If we could produce the golden plates, wouldn't that increase conversion? Some people were disappointed in the fast that President Nelson called for, thinking it was going to result in some miraculous thing that would prove that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was true. And people are often disappointed when the angel isn't sent. But here is a great truth. Alma's testimony didn't come from the angel. He had been struck down by an angel. But that was not his faith-promoting story. 
It was the whisperings of the Holy Ghost that made these things known unto him. I like where he says, I was born of God, and if I wasn't, I wouldn't know what I know. Yep. And so let this be an invitation to you. Be born of God. If you're a parent, deal with them one by one. Yeah. Dip seven times in the river. Yeah. Lead by example. Talk about what you believe. Don't be afraid to say, hey, I believe this. And if they're not in that space, maintain that relationship. Yeah. And, and don't, don't get slothful with the means of hearing him. All right, everyone. We thank you for joining us. We will continue Alma's letters to his son. It's the wayward son. How do you correct a wayward sinning child? And that's what I love about the next few chapters. And what are the doctrines that he teaches a wayward son? A whole lot of wonderful things will come out of the next section. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.